able to finally get some brighter lights in here. I'm thankful for that. I think our next thing, Dave, is to push for tuning that piano. All the upper octaves, can you hear the twanging on the strings, especially those of you who play piano? Sorry, it makes me cringe a little bit even as I choose some of that music. Well, our passage today is Psalm 19. I want to encourage you to turn there. And we are going to look at the whole psalm today, so we're going to read it together first, and then we're going to take a look at what it has to say. Would you stand as we read Psalm 19? This is a glorious psalm, and it begins like this, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge there is no speech, nor are their words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. His precepts, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed by your word. And we are blessed especially by these words from David. And how they tell us and remind us that your word is is more to be desired than much fine gold. And I pray that that would be the desire of our own hearts, the values of our own souls, that we would desire your word more than anything else. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, as we ask that you would help us to understand this word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in his book, Reflection on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis called Psalm 19 the greatest poem in the Psalter, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. So we'll try and, and appreciate today why he would have thought so highly of Psalm 19. And the theme of this psalm is speech. Last week in Psalms 15 and 24, we also saw a strong emphasis on speech. And, and those psalms describe the godly man or woman as being a truth speaker who does not lie. Gossip, slander, 
or break his or her word. And in Psalm 19, we look at what righteous and truth-speaking speech looks like. It, And so here we see in these first four verses, verses 1 through 4, filled with verbs that relate to speech. Declare, proclaim, speak, reveal. But note who or better what is doing the speaking. It's creation. And note what the speech is about. It's about worship. And so the heavens declare the glory of God, and that declaration is not just a one-time event. Rather, David says that this pouring out of speech occurs day to day and night to night, which means that it happens all of the time. And that phrase, pours out, actually translates a Hebrew word that means to gush out. When we recently had to dig a well, a new well in our front yard, one of the last things done was a water flow test. And out of a small six-inch wide hole in sandy ground gushed out this thick stream of water 12 feet high. And that is what is meant in verse 2, this, this thought of the speech of creation, its declaration of God's glory is like that spout of water overflowing, filling, covering, saturating everything. Verse 3 is a little confusing in the English Standard Version that I read. The way the ESV reads, one would, one would understand that the speech of verses 1 through 2 is not audible, but rather just visible. And that's a possible rendering of course, you don't step outside at night, and, and typically most of you don't anyway hear the stars speaking to you audibly. But I wonder if the New King James Version doesn't perhaps capture the sense of the Hebrew a little bit better. In the New King James, it reads, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And so that would be additionally clarified by verse 4 to say that the speech of creation goes throughout the earth and there is no corner of the world, no language, no people group that can't listen, so to speak, to the words of creation. Man is without excuse. As Paul says in Romans 1, verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Well, whichever rendering, whether the ESV or the New King James is better, those first four verses say something important. There's never been a moment when God's creation did not clearly and loudly testify to us about God. And I want to share with you an example of that testimony. It's not, it's not going to be today about the size of the universe or about the gravitational attraction of a black hole. That would probably be a common way to give you a sense of God's power. It's an example far closer to home about clouds and rain. Now, I was thinking about that this past week as our daughter in Florida was experiencing the outside edge of Tropical Storm Alex, and we kept looking at the 10-day forecast for her who's used to so many days of clear sky, rain, 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 every single day, just shake your head. 
Oh, Heather and David, what did you get yourselves into? And also, uh, as we had a remarkably cool week, right, for not this last week. This is when I was thinking about the sermon, the week before when we had all of that cloud cover. Well, it made me start thinking about rain and clouds, and our earth is roughly covered 25% by dry land and 75% by water. And you might think that given all the water that covers this globe that we would have very little problem irrigating the dry land, but we do. We absolutely do. You know, most of the water is contained in saltwater oceans, and, and that's poisonous to plants. The salt is on dry land. You can't pipe it in easily and inexpensively. You certainly can't pipe in salt water, so how does God do it? Well, he uses the heat of the sun to to turn seawater into steam. Water in itself is 800 times heavier than the atmosphere, but water vapor is one-eighth as heavy. And with the perfect temperature and amount of heat from the sun, liquid water is transformed into water vapor and travels up into the air, sometimes miles high, leaving behind, of course, all of that deadly salt in the oceans. And again, the amount of heat is just perfect not to evaporate too much water and make the oceans too salty then for the life that's in in the seas. And so then God uses wind to blow the clouds over the dry land. And I won't explain what causes the wind, but I'll just say that the perfect tilt of the earth and the right mix of dry and wet areas creates temperature differences that result in wind. And so they blow the clouds over dry land, but as those clouds pass over mountainous land, the cold air moving up over the mountain ranges cools down the clouds and causes the vapor to start to condense into moisture. Now, if the temperature of a cloud is lowered by nine degrees, it will drop half of its water just right there. And the total water vapor that is in the Earth's atmosphere at any one time would cover all of the planet's dry land to three feet of water. And so through a delicate balance of of pressure and temperature and even dust in the air, God has created and maintains this ecosystem of water and clouds that guarantees that only a portion of the water is released at one time and irrigates our land. And we could talk about a thousand different things that display the creativity and the power of God. We could talk about the way bees pollinate plants or the way that that light acts as both a wave and a particle or go back to the perfect tilts of the earth and its orbit around the sun and how it creates seasons and the fact that the earth travels through space in its orbit at 67,000 miles per hour. And all of it, day to day, night to night, all of these unending Declarations by creation speak of the magnificent glory and wonder of God. And so I like how we sing Psalm 148. And if you give me control back of that keyboard in Psalm 148, you can see, and we sing this song, right? Praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you stars of light. 
Praise Him, you heaven of heavens. And as we read this psalm, I recognize they didn't have to be invited to praise God. David's really just saying, keep praising Him, you heaven of heavens, you waters above the heavens, right? Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He also established them forever and ever. He made a decree which shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all the depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind, fulfilling His word, mountains, hills, trees, cedars, beasts, cattle, creeping things, flying fowl. Everything praises God as it lives out its purpose and function according to God's creative plan. The irony is that while all of Israel's neighbors actually worship those things, the sun and the moon and even the creatures of the land and of the oceans, that all of those things were praising God. They knew the right order. Of all of God's works, though, one of the most amazing is the sun. That yellow globe of fire, eight light minutes from us, around which our planet orbits and from which we receive light and the heat that we need to survive. And David uses the imagery of a bridegroom leaving his chamber of a strong man running its course, and both of these communicate an eagerness. And the Gentile nations, they worship the sun, but not David. He says that God has appointed the sun's course. It may go out like a strong man or a bridegroom, but the point is that it makes the circuit that God has appointed for it. God made the tent, which in this case is a metaphor for darkness, and set the sun in it. And God established that circuit, and and so the sun runs this course with joy. Why? Because it fulfills what God has appointed. David knew even less than we do about the sun. And yet he could rightly say that as the crowning achievement of God's creative work outside of man, certainly in the heavens, the sun has the strongest voice. Imagine if David knew what we knew about creation, both on the macroscopic level as well as the microscopic level. Would he not marvel? As we read in Psalm 113, 3, from the rising of the sun to its going down, down the Lord's name is to be praised. And the mention of the sun's joy in completing its appointed task is this good transition into verses 7 through 11, because we too are a special part of God's creation. He has appointed for us a course to run. How many of you rise in the morning like a bridegroom exiting the chamber or like a strong man getting ready to run his course? Are you ready for the works that God has appointed you? Or are you going to let the sun shame you with its joy? An additional tie-in is what we find at the end of verse 6. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So the sun is both joyful in that it praises God, but the very declaration of God's glory both reveals His power and existence, but also anticipates God's judgment of those who refuse to listen to the message. 
You can't escape the heat of the sun. Paul in Romans chapter 10 writes this, and he's quoting Psalm 19. He says, I ask, have the Israelites not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did not Israel understand what they were seeing in God's creative order? Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Now, Israel had it right before them. They were told. Certainly David told them, but they wouldn't listen. And now Isaiah is bold enough to say, I've been found by the Gentile nations. I've been found by those who did not even seek for me, didn't ask for me. But if Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so Paul says again, we have no excuse because we have this powerful, constant testimony of God's creation. But even more significantly than that is God's word. Charles Spurgeon once said, he is wisest who reads both the world book and word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. And if we value and are awed by the message given by general revelations, which is what we call that creative order that displays the glory of God, should we not be even more awed by that which is revealed by special revelation, what we call the Word of God. The Apostle Peter in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 wrote, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And you might be thinking, I, I decided to use that passage just to talk about the importance of God's Word but I want you to note that Peter says that the apostles had this external confirmation, a voice that was heard from heaven. But what was the confirmation of? It was of the prophetic word that had been spoken. And Peter says we would do well to heed this word as a light that shines in a dark place. Yes, we have lights around us, we have the sun, we have the stars, they have a purpose. But ultimately, that purpose is first to point generally to God, but to also confirm the testimony that's found in God's Word. And there is a light that will shine into the very depths of your soul, and that is the light of God's Scriptures. And that's what we find in the second half of this psalm, where we see a series of parallel statements that describe God's Word. We read how the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And that word law here is Torah, which actually is a term that's a little broader than just law. You might be thinking this referring to the Ten Commandments and the Levitical law, but Torah is instruction. It more often refers, as it does here, to the whole of God's word. So a, 
a fair rendering of verse 7 would be, the word of the Lord is perfect. And it's perfect because it is his word, first of all, and it's perfect because it accomplishes its purpose and it never returns to him void. It has life-giving properties, and that's why David says that it revives the soul. The New King James uses the word converts. It converts the soul. And for the believer, God's word is refreshing and reviving. For the unbeliever to whom the Holy Spirit has given a new heart of faith, God's word converts the soul from death to life and slowly remolds that character to be like Christ. And God's perfect word tells you not only what you should do, but why you should do it. And with regard to the what to do, many, many passages that tell you what God expects of you. Glorify God in all things, right? To minister to others, Romans 14. To fulfill God-given responsibilities, 1 Peter 4. To evangelize the lost, Matthew 28 and 2 Peter 3. To do good works, Titus 3. To produce spiritual fruit, Colossians chapter 1. Does that type of purpose and content impact what car you buy and what job you take and where you live and the whole host of day-to-day decisions of life? Absolutely. You are not your own. That's part of the content of God's Word. You are bought with a price and God expects you to live for Him. Not only does God's Word tell you what to do, but it also tells you why you should do it and some of the attitudes that God wants to guide your decisions. Love, dependence on Him, humility, gratitude, integrity, diligence, eagerness to please the Lord, generosity, courage, joy. Ultimately, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, we have as our ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. And we do all things for the glory of Him who has called us. And so as we continue in these verses, we see what appear to be these synonyms for this very glorious word that contains all of that, what you should do, why you should do it. Synonyms such as the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. There are slight differences there, but collectively they refer to God's scriptures and they tell us that it is sure, it is right, it is pure, it is clean, it is true, it is righteous, it makes us wise and causes us to rejoice. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that you may be complete Equipped for every good work. So that's how David saw the Word of God. What he saw as God's revelation of himself, both in in the created order as well as in the specific Word. And when the church replaces all of that with entertainment and popular psychology, the things that were meant to lead to life and revive the soul... The things that were intended to make us pure and clean and right and joyful, they are treated as offensive and passed over. And the result of doing that is nothing less than astonishing. Big churches. (laughs) Huge churches. 
It's not to say that's generically the description of every single large church, but it is to say that there is this phenomenon that when you remove the very things that David praises about God's word, the result is often huge churches. It was exactly the same in the experience of Christ. Enormous crowds initially were attracted to his miracles. But then what happened when they realized that he was not what they expected? When he began to tell them of God's precepts, they left. And the mega church of 5,000 became the little church of 50. And a great example of that is Mark chapter 1, where Mark tells us in his gospel how Jesus healed the apostle Peter's mother-in-law. And as soon as word of that healing got out, there was a whole bunch of people coming to see. And when they looked for Jesus, they couldn't find him. And so they appealed to the disciples to find him. And verse 37 says how they finally found him praying. And they said, everyone's looking for you. Stop, come. In other words, what are you doing praying when there's such important work to do? And I can imagine one of them saying, Jesus, I know how much you like to preach. And certainly, that's an important part. But I want to point out something you may have missed, and that is yesterday morning when you were teaching at the synagogue, you had a decent response. People were impressed that you taught with authority, but there were only a few people present. And it was in the afternoon when you began to do all of the miraculous healings and other things that hundreds began to respond and come. And I think you actually have hit upon the right evangelistic strategy. People like healings, so let's do that. Let's go heal some more people. And what did Jesus do? He said, let's go somewhere else. (laughs) So I can preach there also, is what he said. That's why I have come. And it's striking. Jesus refusing to carry on this this miracle ministry that, that drew thousands of people. Because he knew that if he let miracles eclipse his teaching, there may be thousands of fit and healthy people following him, but in spite of their good external health and excitement, they would eventually die spiritually. Or at least stay dead. Because miracles convert no one. But God's word does. And in Luke 16, Jesus taught this parable about a rich man named Lazarus. Not the Lazarus that Jesus uh, raised from the dead, but a different Lazarus. And according to that parable, when both men died, the rich man and Lazarus, that Lazarus was brought into the presence of Abraham. And the rich man was separated from him. And at one point, the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus to his five brothers. You may remember this little story. To warn them so that they also won't end up where he is. In essence, he's arguing, Lazarus, the miraculous appearance, if you will appear to them, if you'll speak to them, it'll convince them to change. He says, if someone from the dead goes to them, they they will repent. And the answer is, 
they have Moses and the prophets. That's a phrase used to refer to God's word. They have Moses and the prophets. If they do not listen to them, they'll not be convinced even if someone raises, rises from the dead. Paul says in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And no doubt today many would say we're not ashamed either. But if you look at the rest of the passage, it says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And you see what these contrasts, these verses. On the one hand, there's the righteousness of God. That's what we find in the scriptures. It's why it's pure and revives the soul. On the other hand, there's the unrighteousness of men. You need that too. In God's revelation. From the created order, as we saw in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19, comes a revelation of God's existence and power. Even the burning heat of the sun implies the wrath of God against the unrighteousness of men. But from God's instructions and his commandments and his precepts and his rules and the fear of God come more revelation of the righteousness of God, the unrighteousness of man. And Paul says that only that is the true content of the Scriptures, and he is not ashamed of that. And that should be our attitude as well. What is the result of not spending time meditating upon those things? Paul says in Romans 2.5, because of your heart and impenitent heart. Notice this is shortly after talking about not being ashamed of the gospel So he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but you are. And you've got to be careful. You don't want to be in that category. You are ashamed of the gospel. And it's because of your hard and impenitent heart that you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when that righteous judgment will be revealed and he will render to each one according to his works. To those by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And those are hard works, or hard words, but they are part of the gospel. They're what happens when we ignore God's instructions. And that's why Jesus says in Mark 8, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will also be ashamed, them, when he comes in glory with his Father and the holy angels. And so I go back to that passage from 2 Timothy 3, where he's got, Paul says that God's word is, is there. It's the instruction for us in God's righteousness. Also man's unrighteousness. It equips us for every good work. And without a proper understanding of that, we are like a rudderless ship. We have no direction no true awareness of self, no true understanding of where we are going. But if you would be like David and you would treasure God's precepts and commandments and rules and word, you will begin to live in a manner that is purposed 
intentional, worthy of God. You become a, a man or a woman who knows why he walks the way that he does and what he should be doing. If you want to know why Psalm 19 talks so much about rejoicing in and loving God's instruction, it is that this only is the message that leads to life. So, we were in our midweek Bible study in Jeremiah recently going through this passage in Jeremiah 5. And here God is warning Israel. He says, they've healed the wound of my people lightly. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land, and that is the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, and my people love it so. When we do not understand and treasure God's precepts, commands, rules, and everything that is described here in Psalm 19, when we do not value those highly, what tends to happen is that we disregard what God has said about the unrighteousness of man and then contrast the holiness, righteousness of God. We think higher of ourselves, less of God, and what we do is we begin to declare peace, peace, and we love it so. And Jeremiah's response is found in chapter 14, several chapters later, where he says, Lord, God, behold, the prophets are saying to them, you shall not see the sword. You shall not have famine. But I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I didn't send them, nor did I command them. Or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, and none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. You realize that you have been appointed ambassadors of the gospel of God. You realize that Paul calls upon you to have the same response that he does, that you are not ashamed of the gospel of God. Do you realize that as God says to Jeremiah, yes, sword and famine will consume the people that have been declaring peace, peace, but who else is going to be consumed? The very people that were listening to them. Friends, we have to be a different voice. We have to be the voice of truth of Jeremiah, even if people are ashamed of that voice in truth. I encourage you to look again at Psalm 19 and ask, is this attitude of David, and, and we would call Psalm 19 kind of the, the junior brother of Psalm 119, where in a, that much longer psalm we see over and over again, David saying how I love your law, how I love your precepts, how I uh, meditate upon them day and night, how I am famished for hearing more of your word. Is that your attitude? 
One of the most brazen and sad scenes of all in the book of Jeremiah is found in chapter 36. God has been warning Israel, not just through Jeremiah, but through Isaiah and all of what we call the minor prophets just because their books are shorter. But they had just as important words to say to Israel. But Jeremiah had been warning the people over and over again through 40 years of ministry in four different kings, Josiah, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And finally, in one of the times when he's with King Jehoiakim, where there's still time, if you will, to repent perhaps, we read that the, here's this king, and it's a, it's a great dramatic picture made for a movie where he's sitting down before a fire in the courtyard. And he's listening to one of the scribes read Jeremiah's scroll. And he periodically stops the scribe. And he's eating. He's got a knife. And you can imagine him in the movie, you know, slicing an apple and sticking it into his mouth and eating it. You know, what was it? You know, bring me that portion of the scroll. And so the person, Jehudi, who's, who's reading the scroll to him, brings it over. And, and Jehoiakim takes it and he takes his knife covered with apple juice, right? <laughs> or whatever takes a knife, slices off a part, and throws it into the fire. The king then sins to have Jeremiah imprisoned while the false prophets continue to proclaim a gospel of health and wealth and prosperity. Peace, peace. And my people love it so. Chomp, chomp. (laughs) And he's eating down what? He's eating down destruction. That's what Jehoiakim is doing. And if God's instructions and precepts are neglected, if they are pushed away, ignored, if if they are left gathering dust on our bookshelves, then what happens is that same false peace and self-righteousness come in because that is merely men and women thinking as men and women always think apart from revelation They always minimize their sin, they exalt their own natural abilities, and they invent endless plans for their own salvation. And it's only by the sword of the Spirit that we're able, as 2 Corinthians 10 says, to destroy all of those false arguments. And friends, you know, we often take that 2 Corinthians 10 passage, the one that says, destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, take every thought captive to obey Christ. We often take that, we look at the the vain philosophies of, of world culture, and we kind of think all this is referring to are things like the the new sexual agenda in American culture or any number of things that are radically opposed to gospel. I would argue that the most subtle, nuanced, and most dangerous lofty opinion levied against the, the people of God is the same thing that Satan said to Adam in the garden. You can be like God. You don't need his righteousness. You don't need him. Taste and eat of the world. I think that the worst thing is the fact that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. 
Not that we're surrounded by all this darkness. When we're surrounded by darkness, we kind of know the, the battle lines. And then we tend to ignore the stuff that's right here next to us, whispering in our ear, saying, peace, peace. Well, we finally come to David's plea in verses 11 through 14, and David appeals to God for strength to obey. That's the right attitude. Reject the falsehoods, meditate upon God's word, be drawn through the natural operation of the the scriptures and the work of the Holy Spirit on your heart to recognize the righteousness of God, the unrighteousness of man, the great gulf that falls between, the necessity for Christ, and it drives us to ask and plea, as David does in verse 11, help me to obey. Keep me back from presumptuous sin. I want to be blameless, he says. In fact, David desires to have the same blameless character, complete character that he describes the word of God having in verse 7. It's as if he's saying, I love your word and I treasure it. It revives my soul. I want my life to mirror what I read here. And what is his final request? Verse 14 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Here we've been hearing the speech of God throughout. We remember our look at Psalms 15 and 24 last week. Keep watch over the door of my lips. And here's the conclusion to the past few months that we've spent so far in the Psalms. Righteousness is a life based on true wisdom, and true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Psalm 1, the fear of the Lord in turn roots people in God himself, keeps us close to him in personal fellowship with God, and God alone is the ultimate self-replenishing, inexhaustible fountain of life. And that fountain doesn't stay put. It gushes out of you just like worship and praise gush out of the created order. Proverbs 10.11 says that the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. That's what David desires. God means to be that fountain for you. He wants the abundant waters of his righteousness to flow out. He has creation speaking and testifying of him. He has his word speaking and testifying of him. Guess what? He wants you speaking and testifying of him. As Matthew 12 warns us on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. That's a sobering thought. It's not that suddenly we lose the sense of justification by faith alone, but there is such a close connection between our words and the authenticity of our faith that Jesus could say, by our very words we are justified or condemned. Because Christ will be manifested in the words that you speak. So how important is it for David to pray, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable. In Psalm 141.3, we read, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. 
So friends, as you look at your lives this week, ask, are you that third chapter in God's revelation of his righteousness? The unrighteousness of men. Have you been ashamed of the gospel or are you speaking truth? Are your words bringing healing? Is your life measured by the same Psalm 19, 119? Oh, how I love your instructions. May that be true of you. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for your wonderful word. No wonder that in David's praise of you that in the middle he says how much we should desire your word. We should desire it because of all of the rich things that it does in transforming, converting, reviving the soul, bringing joy, guiding us, guarding us, helping us, enlightening us. Lord, help us to have that same attitude as David. And may we be said to be a people who praise you with our lips just like creation and your word do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.